0: Good afternoon, Dr. D'Anguero. This is Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Pacific Northwest of the USA. Today is the 16th day of April, 2022. And this is lecture number 33 in diabetes. Yes, I know. Isn't that have a nice sound to it? 33 lectures. I mean, and here I thought I was gonna get away with a, a, a cool 10. Well, the problem was that diabetes is dyslipidemia, and so I have to spend much more time than I would for other diseases or for other topics um, that would run astray from the central architectonic of life, which, of course, is lipid metabolism. And since diabetes is all about dyslipidemia, I have to, and I do it with full um, intentional will. Um, embark on a rather serious discussion of some of the high points of lipid metabolism in human, and that's what I did, and that's what I've been doing. And so, this is not an apology. This is in fact a reinforcing, uh, in concreto, event ontology that hopefully um, keeps you listening. <laughs> so, but what I am going to do today is the top, the title of this lecture I'm going to give is called Diabetes, The End. So I am really gonna to try to end this. Now, I'm not gonna end it in 30 minutes because I've already wasted three minutes explaining uh, the, via introduction. But the introduction was appropriate and the explanation of hope, hopefully was adequate So let's get into the general discussion of diabetes. Let's get back up on the top of Pikes Peak and look down into Colorado Springs at that long distance down there. And let's talk just generally about this disease. First of all, what is dyslipidemia? Dyslipidemia is high levels of circulating, non-esterified, free fatty acids that happens to be very common in obesity. I explained to you how that occurs with the lipase activity come from the adipose. Um, So this is just a summarization. I'm starting now to do that synthesis. I did the synthesis several lectures ago in a video lecture. I'm still gonna give you a video lecture, not today though. Um, Now I'm doing synthesis in the podcast oral lecture. Now, high circulating fatty acids, obesity. Fatty fatty acyl-CoA metabolism, this is going to be now within the cell, of course, blocks glycolysis in the liver by increasing ATP production because of the reduction of NAD and FAD during the oxidation of fatty acids in the mitochondria. High NADH will then block pyruvate dehydrogenase and also because you can move that reducing power around from the mitochondria into the cytosol and vice versa. There's an enzyme in the cytosol, which is glycerol 3 phosphate dehydrogenase, and that will inhibit glycolysis as well. Plus the whole Pasteur effect of ATP and NADH to NAD common ratios held in the cytoplasm and in the mitochondrion will make glycolysis shut down and there's also the allosteric regulation that's associated with ultimately even the transcription of the genes responsible for the glycolytic pathway versus the carnitine pathway and the beta-oxidation pathway enzymes which will also be tuned up uh, when you have high levels of fatty acids entering the cell so there's now steric regulation there's a bioenergetic regulation there is a transcriptional regulation and there's a post-translational regulation, which has to do with amphibolic movement of polypeptides and transcription factors, for example, that we talked about last time, such as the PPARs. Okay. Low glucose utilization, therefore, is a result. That means increases in serum glucose, which increases pancreatic insulin secretion. Finally, though, as the disease progresses, insulin insufficiency occurs. So there's not enough insulin to be able to carry out the massive amount of glucose that needs to be taken up for, via the GLUT4 pathway in the adipose and skeletal muscle, for example. Major organs responsible for maintaining glucose homeostasis. Uh, and then what you get is insulin resistance. You have plenty of insulin but again, remember how that whole inhibition of the insulin receptor functions through the IRF pathway. I'm just hitting on those points. So the way it works is people become overweight because of overeating and lack of exercise. This induces the production from the adipose of tumor necrosis factor alpha and free fatty acid. This will induce insulin resistance throughout the body where insulin is required for glucose dependent uptake. And also remember insulin is required for intermediary metabolic regulation, as I have been describing to you all these lectures. Now, insulin resistance will lead to metabolic syndrome. That means high levels of insulin. So uh, you're going to have hyperinsulinemia. You're going to have Blood sugar, which is still somewhat maintaining a normal status during metabolic syndrome uh, uh, progression. Triacylglycerol levels, however, will be high because of a lot of circulating lipoproteins, chylomicron, BLDL, IDL, LDL, uh, and HDL. But the HDL will be necessarily lower because the reverse transport of lipids back to the liver will be inhibited because of all of the incoming amount of lipid in circulation from the adipose and all that lipase activity. Metabolic syndrome, of course, also has a kidney involvement. So you're going to have uh, the whole angiotensin, renin pathway becoming corrupted, and this is going to lead to high blood pressure, okay? Pancreas will still compensate, though, at the level of metabolic syndrome. But as metabolic syndrome becomes more florid, type 2 diabetes then results. In the prodromal stages, insulin is often higher than normal. Blood sugar levels, but carbohydrate, particularly glucose, very high. That's why it looks like a a diabetic state. Triacylglycerol level circulation is still really high. HDL levels either low or at a basal level, all the other lipoproteins very high, and again still in type two diabetes, very high blood pressure because of the increase in glomerular involvement in the kidney, corrupting further uh, the kidney, pe- the kidney uh, control over uh, you know water reabsorption and mineral uh, transport, and that whole. Uh, Alteration of gene expression occurs in the kidney because of the high levels of circulating fatty acids that we covered in a previous lecture. By the time you get type two diabetes, pancreas can no longer compensate for the amount of insulin that's necessary, uh, and that's because the pancreas is being bombarded with high circulating glucose, high circulating insulin, and high circulating non-sterified free fatty acid, all of which work to inhibit insulin secretion. So that gives you the, the overview of how you get to the, from the uh, healthy to the diabetic state. Now, remember that the regulation of glucose metabolism involves hormones. Insulin, of course, is synthesized in the pancreas by the beta cells, those islet cells, of Langerhans. Those are specific uh, cells that you find in the pancreas when it's functioning in its endocrine uh, way pancreas is also an exocrine or organ involved in digestion. You know about that too from previous lectures. So the beta cells produce pro-insulin. The alpha cells produce glucagon. The delta cells produce somatostatin, which helps regulate both of those hormones. And so-called F cells produce another pancreatic polypeptide which regulates the expression secretion of all of the endocrine hormones, as well as a lot of digestive enzymes. Okay, so at the hormonal regulation level, there's ingestion of nutrients, stimulates the release of glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide, that's GIP, and also it stimulates glucagon-like peptide 1, GLP. So you've got insulin, GIP, GLP-1. Now, those, like GIP and GLP-1 come from cells that are in the gut. And what those two peptides do, GIP and GLP-1, is they stimulate further the production of insulin back at the pancreas, and they inhibit the transcription and, of course, secretion of glucagon. Remember, glucagon is a pancreatic hormone that comes on when uh, long a- after fasting. So glucagon turns on when glucose levels are usually low, right? Because glucagon, among other things, um, enhances glycogen phosphorylase, so you can get free glucose coming out of the liver that way. But glucagon also stimulates via adenylate cyclase cascades in the liver gluconeogenesis. So you don't want glucagon increasing. Now, insulin, when it's working normally, stimulates the diffusion of glucose into those two major organs, adipose and skeletal muscle. Glucose then is oxidized via glycolysis, and uh, it, some of the glucose can be used for glycogen synthesis, for example, skeletal muscle, but a lot of the glucose gets almost all of that carbon excess to what's needed for glycogen and for just normal metabolic turnover in the cell, even, whether it's the liver, the kidney, the skeletal muscle, the endothelial muscles, uh, central nervous system. That glucose can be burned quickly, and the CNS is the only place where it's completely respired to CO2. TCA cycle is burning up glucose to make all those 32 ATP, 32 to 35 ATP. No other involvement really in the CNS because glucose is water soluble, and that's, that's its mainstay for bioenergetics. But all the other organs will generate triacylglycerol. And then you start the whole lipid transport mechanism coming from the liver, both in the digestive system, to the chylomicron, chylomicron remnant system. But then you've got the whole uh, slurry of lipoproteins that carry out transport bulk of triacylglycerol, cholesterol esters, and phospholipids and sphingolipids coming from the hepatic system. Okay. All right. Now, in the fasting state, glucose is produced by glycogen breakdown, that's glycogenolysis, but also by, via gluconeogenesis. And Remember, that's from non-carbohydrate precursors, and no fatty acids cannot in, introduce carbon into gluconeogenesis. Glycerol can, but no fatty acids can. Of course, cholesterol neither, uh, because its degradation pathway doesn't involve any carbon. Um, that could be utilized for gluconeogenesis. So basically, we're talking about lactate and amino acids, uh, pyruvate, of course, but those are all interconvertible. So glucagon is responsible for most glucose production in the fasting state via those two methods, glycogenolysis and gluconeogenesis. There are other counterregulatory hormones, you know, corticosteroids, growth hormone, catecholamines, and those essentially all augment gluconeogenesis, or at least glucose stimulates glucose production into the circulation. What about exercise? Exercise, initially insulin levels drop upon strenuous exercise, and both glucagon and catecholamine levels increase because of all the glucose being pulled out of serum, out of circulation. This will then increase the production of free fatty acids, and then that will stimulate glycogenolysis. So there's a rise in glucose to meet energy demands during exercise. This is the Cori cycle, alanine cycle you've heard me talk about. Muscle tissue increases metabolism, glucose as exercise continues, increasing insulin sensitivity and maintaining uh, those basal normal blood glucose levels in the presence of lower insulin levels. So the two are in constant uh, dynamic. During a stress response... You get stress hormones. This can be a psychological stress or this can be a physiological stress. Uh, Corticosteroids are common during, for example, major depressive disorder and general anxiety disorder and schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. So corticosteroids are generated from that kind of stress as well as from stress from, uh, again, any number of things that can cause bodily stress, overexertion, uh, tissue damage, accidents, uh, anything that's going on that could cause a pathology will induce the production of stress hormones. And we went through that whole series of pathways coming through this, the HPA axis and whatnot a while back as well. So I'm not gonna repeat myself. Corticosteroids, catecholamines of stress hormones, they will also increase the production of glucose in the liver, so they'll enhance gluconeogenesis just like glucagon does. Uh, and so glucagon keeps on getting generated from the pancreas. And so you basically then, drive all reactions to make more glucose during stress. Catecholamines actually also increase the production of free fatty acids because they induce lipolysis. But they inhibit, catecholamines inhibit glucose uptake in the periphery, trying to maintain glucose only for the central nervous system during the stress response. All of the events I just mentioned to you during prolonged stress will lead to hyperglycemia, and you can usually study this after postprandial ingestion of a carbohydrate. Type 2 diabetes is the most common form of diabetes now, probably almost 90% of it. Non-Caucasian elderly seem to be disproportionately affected, although the, the way that there's a distribution within the population is very complex. The most common risk factor for generating type 2 diabetes is not genetic, It is, yes, it has an epigenetic uh, involvement, but the number one criterion is obesity. A second risk factor is aging, but usually aging is associated with putting on depot fat. And then another aspect of obesity and aging that come together is sedentary lifestyle. All of those are risk factors for T2D, type 2 diabetes, uh, mellitus. Insulin resistance then generates. I just explained to you that uh, you get beta cell dysfunction. I told you how that happens. And then basically it looks like there's a relative deficiency in insulin, when really that's not the cause of it. Now I'm reminding you again of some of the intermediary pathways that you must keep in mind because you are becoming biochemists, or if maybe not becoming one, but you want to become. A biochemist, right? You want to be knowledgeable in this uh, grandfather of all scientific disciplines. Remember when glucagon or epinephrine bind to their plasma membrane receptor. Epinephrine is classical catecholamine, right? HPA axis. What glucagon and epinephrine do is turn on the activity of adenylate cyclase. Adenylate cyclase makes the P. Cyclic P then breaks, uh, causes a dissociation of a tetrameric protein to a dimeric protein, and then ultimately you turn on protein kinase A. Protein kinase A phosphorylates multiple enzymes, which can then control the following. Because of glucagon epinephrine, you get an increase in glycogenolysis, you get an increase in gluconeogenesis. At the same time, you get a decrease, a tanking, I call it, of glycolysis and lipogenesis. This has to do with the direct activity of PKA, protein kinase A, after cyclic AMP production. What else can I tell you? Okay. AMP kinase shuts down ATP requiring processes and stimulates ATP producing metabolism so how does this happen i already mentioned to you a lot of ex- excessive work going out and splitting wood for two hours going out and mowing the lawn for a couple of hours going out and shoveling snow for a couple of hours that kind of heavy duty strenuous work um, will decrease the amount of total atp total atp can also be taint whenever there is hypoxia hypoxia also is related to a lot of work because of what strenuous skeletal muscle exercise Will diminish the amount of molecular oxygen available. That's why we have things like the chorus cycle and the alanine cycle, right? Because the skeletal muscle becomes slightly hypoxic. We talked about hypoxia, hypoxia initiation factor, and we talked all about the regulation of that in skeletal muscle and also even in adipose and other peripheral organs. Anyway, decreasing ATP increases AMP because remember, you have. Relative ratios of ATP to ADP, ATP to AMP, and ATP plus ADP to AMP. And remember, all those just are related to the three different phosphates that are on uh, adenosine. So you increase adenosine monophosphate, that will then uh, activate AMP kinase, AMP kinase will then also be a, a, an enzyme which will phosphorylate the the, end, the the downstream processing will do the following: when AMP kinase becomes the the major contribut- contributing kinase in the cell, you increase glycolysis, you increase beta oxidation of fatty acids because you're trying to be ATP generating. For ATP generating, you don't want to be ATP utilizing. So. AMP kinase uh, was functioning to phosphorylate a series of enzymes that act again in signal transduction, cascades, intracellularly. We'll tank lipogenesis. We'll tank protein synthesis. That's the mTOR-AKT pathway, for example. Tank lipogenesis. That's the whole fatty acid synthase, Um, but also genesis, right? Say picoid reductase, for example. All of those are shut down because all of those are anabolic, ATP requiring systems. If ATP is low, you are, you are catabolic, non-anabolic. Now, when insulin binds to its receptor, it is a negative effector for the 4 transcription factor. When the 4 transcription factor normally works, it works on the IRE. The IRE is the insulin response element. So, again, insulin blocks that, Okay. So this would result in when insulin binds and it blocks a 4K, 4K transcription factor at the, at the level of the insulin response element in nucleic acid for chromatin remodeling, where there are genes that code for glucogenic and fatty acid oxidation genes, you're going to decrease those genes that are expressed that are involved with gluconeogenesis and decrease those genes that are responsible for beta oxidation. Okay. At the same time, you will positively insulin will positive to the IRF positively turn on the SREBP-1c. That's the response element binding protein. as a transcription factor. It will bind to the SRE. It's a response uh, element. Uh, Assists acting to turn on lipogenic genes, so you'll get an increase in lipogenesis. And we already told you what those are, right? Acylical carboxylase, fatty acid synthase, synthase, and all the glycerolipid and sphingolipid metabolic enzymes, the ones that are anabolic. Glucose itself will also work through a transcription factor called the carbohydrate response element binding protein. And that will directly work on the carbohydrate factor response element, which is, again, cis-acting DNA elements. All of these elements I'm telling you about can also be epigenetically modified. Just keep that in mind. And they are regularly. Um, The the carbohydrate response element, uh, then when it binds to the binding protein because of glucose uptake, will turn on lipogenic genes and so you get an increase in lipogenesis. So insulin uh, involves the synthesis of lipids because glucose is converted to lipid storage, depot, triacylglycerol, neutral lipid. In particular. What is fatty? What do fatty acids do? Well, for P- PPAR alpha, that's proxy proliferator al- receptor alpha, which we talked about just yesterday. Um, it will bind to the proxy proliferator receptor elements. For the mitochondria Fox genes, that'll increase fatty acid oxidation. For the PPRE, you also do peroxisomal uh, uh, fox genes, fatty acid oxidation genes. Further increasing fatty acid oxidation than the peroxisomal uh, beta oxidation involves the breaking down of very long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids. I have mentioned that several times. PPAR-alpha finally then also works on ketogenesis transcription, uh, again, binding to the response element PPRE, and you get all of the enzymes involved in acetoacetate beta-hydroxybutyrate production. And you're going to need that because you're making a lot of acetyl-CoA because you're doing a lot of fatty acid oxidation. Okay? So fatty acids coming in, they're going to get oxidized, right? Broken down to acetyl-CoA. Acetyl-CoA, if this is the liver, this is where we're talking about in the liver here, um, then you're going to get the liver to produce ketone bodies. Acetyl acid, beta hydroxybutyrate Now, what does cortisol do? Okay, let me take my time here. See, this is an overview, right? Uh, we got time. Metabolically, biological action of cortisol are involved in hyperglycemic, glycogenic, coniogenic, lipolytic, and protein catabolic pathways. So basically insulin antagonism in the muscle and adipose tissue. Uh, Cortisol also inhibits bone formation and stimulates bone resorption. Cortisol is necessary for vascular response to the catecholamines. Cortisol is generally anti-inflammatory. That's why people get steroid jots when they have high inflammation, for example, in skeletal muscle or in ligature. Uh, cortisol, besides being anti-inflammatory, overall suppresses the immune system. That's at the level of differentiation of leukocytes and lymphocytes. I've talked about that a great deal as well. I'll just mention it here. Uh, Cortisol will inhibit the antidiuretic hormone secretion and action. So this, again, is a a mechanism that controls water reabsorption in the kidney. Cortisol stimulates gastric acid secretion for digestion. It's necessary, cortisol, for integrity and function of the GI tract. It stimulates red blood cell production in the bone marrow. It alters, of course, mood and behavior. And um, again, its lipolytic effects are coincidental with the catecholamines. Okay? Because those are other stress hormones. Now, when insulin binds to its receptor... It, it, it activates via phosphorylation. Remember, the tyrosine kinase uh, autophosphorylation of the receptor, ultimately causing the phosphorylation of uh, insulin response substrate, IRS, which then induces phosphorylation of phosphorylation and phosphorylation 13 kinase. The PI3 kinase then activates protein kinase Akt, as well as P protein kinase C, excuse me, delta, and both of those protein kinases then will stimulate glucose transport. Okay? Now, when glucose transport is inhibited, ceramide is associated with that inhibition. Now, ceramide, again, is, a, is an acylated sphingosine, sphingolipid, right? and it's isolated on that nitrogen atom that was delivered from the serine fusing to the palmitate when the sphingonine base was first generated during novo synthesis so ceramides then are involved in membrane lipid wrapped transport mobilization of such things as receptors and voltage-gated channels of all things to the plasma membrane And also moving around a lot of uh, protein and enzyme machinery that you find embedded in membranes. So membrane lipid rafts are primarily composed of ceramide and cholesterol. So the relative ratios of ceramide to cholesterol and which fatty acids are bound in the amide linkage in ceramide play a major role in the kind of proteins that get sorted by that membrane lipid raft mechanism. In this case, when you have a lot of ceramide that is in direct association, this is important because it's an in situ effect near the insulin receptor and the IRS, the substrate for insulin phosphorylation, that ceramide in that portion of the plasma membrane will inactivate protein kinase C and protein kinase B, okay? And it will not allow for glucose transport it will inhibit it. That's the important thing. Ceramides also, as they simply build up, not in an episodic way, but in a chronic way, will also um, uh, not allow for um, protein kinase B to be activated because there is an active phosphatase, the protein phosphatase PP2A, which is tuned up um, because of ceramide chronically associated in plasma membrane lipid rafts that are not mobilizing in and out. You get a buildup of ceramide in endomembranous systems where it's generated, as we're showing, lipid metabolism occurs endomembranously, particularly in mitochondria and the plusparticular Golgi apparatus, peroxisome, um, all of those in intracellular organelle systems. And so, buildup of ceramide corrupts that whole pathway for insulin activation. It's Dr. Dan Guerra on the 16th of April, 2022, wishing you a very happy Easter Saturday. Bye for now.